In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow. Between the crosses, row on row. That mark our place and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly. Scars heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunsets glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' field. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours, hold it now. If ye break faith with us who die. We shall not sleep, though poppies grow, in Flanders' field. That's In Flanders' Fields, a poem about those who have died in World War I on the Western Front. It's a poem about a group of dead soldiers who fought and died, who were once alive and experienced life, but have died fighting for freedom. And they charge the next generation to take up the torch and hold it high and not to break faith with those who die. Today we start a new series on 2 Timothy and this is what we've got going on. It's Flanders Fields, where the Apostle Paul is handing over the torch to his young apprentice, Timothy. And Timothy is not looking too good right now. If he were a racehorse, you would never put a bet on him. He's lucky if he even gets to the gates. Let me tell you what's going on here in Second Timothy before we open up. The scriptures this morning, because if we don't understand kind of the background of why this is written, then these words are not going to make a lot of sense. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's our author, and this is his swan song letter. Typically, he writes to churches, and they're known as the Pauline epistles or the church epistles. These are known as the pastoral epistles. He first writes to Timothy, and then he writes to Titus, and then he writes to Timothy again known as 2 Timothy, his last recorded letter that we have. At the time of writing, the church has been growing and expanding since the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, and he left his disciples to carry on the mission, and Paul becomes one of these. And in AD 64, there is a tyrant on the Roman Empire throne named Nero. And he starts this fire in the city of Rome. And it spreads across Rome and brings about citywide destruction. And Nero, being the good guy that he is, blames the Christians. And so he says, and he makes this Roman-wide edict, that if uh, the, the Christians are to be captured and punished for this crime. And rumors are actually that, uh, and this is written in some of the historical books, that Nero himself actually started the flame. But the Christians took the rap for it. And so uh, this, this empire-wide persecution begins for Christianity like they hadn't experienced before. Up until this point, Christianity is really pretty, pretty um, un, uh, not, not very well known to the Roman Empire. And we didn't experience persecution like we're about to. We experienced a little bit of persecution mainly from the Jews. Because we were just seen as a, a, a different little sect of Judaism. 
And the Jews didn't like that. They disagreed with who we believe Jesus to be as the Messiah. But up until this point, Rome had relatively left us alone. And uh, it seems at this time, during this persecution, that Paul is captured and he's put in prison in Rome. And this is where he writes this letter to Timothy. You see, it's become a dangerous thing to openly embrace or preach Christianity and to befriend or testify on behalf of its, its leader, Paul, would be even worse. Paul had just come back from Asia and in chapter 1 and verse 15, he actually says that all in Asia turned away from me. See, following his arrest, he was charged with a capital crime. And he appealed to those notable Christians that he had spent time with in Asia, who would be familiar with his work and his character and what he was doing, to come to Rome and to testify on his behalf. But because of the apparent hopelessness of this case and the danger that it would bring to them, they all turned away, not daring to identify themselves with Paul. And so Paul stands up and actually pleads his own case. And he boldly confronts his adversaries and, and, he, and he successfully in the short term, so it seems, repels the accusations. But they put him in prison, awaiting further trial. We read this in chapter 4 and it's, it's in this state that he writes this letter. Second Timothy is a letter with emotion to it. Twice Paul refers to Timothy as his child. You see, they were ministry partners and comrades, the latter a mentor to the former. And with persecution in Rome and Paul knowing his life is coming to an end soon, writes to his son in the faith because he has heard of his timidity in leadership of the church. You see, Paul had left Timothy in leadership at the church in Ephesus. He instructed him to appoint elders, continue the mission, preach the gospel. But Paul has heard that Timothy isn't going so well. He's timid. He's backing away instead of moving forward. And Paul's coming to the end of his life. His ministry is finishing. And since that day on the Damascus Road when Saul became Paul, he has spent his life preaching and teaching the gospel, traveling around the Mediterranean, establishing churches, raising leaders. And boy, did he pay for it. In other letters, we read about his beatings and mockings, his imprisonments, his shipwrecks, he's been lost at sea. He's been pelted with stones. He's suffered from hunger and from thirst. He's constantly in danger. He's always being attacked from Jews, Gentiles, criminals, in towns, in cities. For years, Paul has done this. His, mar his life was marked with suffering for the gospel. And now he's getting to the end. And no one shows up for him. And his, his protege is stumbling and Paul can see his ministry falling away. The kid he mentored and commissioned to carry on and 
the carry on the faith is flailing. And so Paul, before it's too late, has got some pretty serious instruction and some perspective to give to Timothy. It's like if you had a 17-year-old daughter and she was the treasure of your life and she comes home one day and there's a guy on her side and he's got tattoos and piercings and green hair and a leather jacket and, he, and she tells you, we're going to get married and we're leaving tonight. You wouldn't stop him at the door and say, now let me give you a couple of tips and tricks, honey. No, you would stop and you'd look her in the eyes. And you'd plead with her. Don't do this. There's a better way. Do you see what you're doing? And that's what Paul's doing in this letter. He is instructing the next generation through Timothy to take up the torch. And we're going to see what is required of the church to do first and foremost as the apostles die out. You see, often church is good at gathering. We've got a lot of switched on people, gifted people. We can organize. But we're not really sure what our marching orders are. And Paul's going to tell us what our marching orders are to be a good soldier. What our training regime is if we were an athlete. So that we can say, as Paul does, I have fought the good fight. I have won the race. I have kept the faith. So what is it? What are our marching orders? First and foremost, as the church... It is to protect and preach the gospel based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. It's really important that it's based on the eyewitness apostles' testimony because they got it from Jesus himself. They were there. They saw it. And so 2 Timothy is a book for all of us. It's a book for all of us because there's some timidity in all of us. We're fearful of suffering at times. We all back off at times when there's a chance to live out our faith. We all get scared when there's an opportunity to share our faith. This happened to me only a month ago. I was here... uh, for a restore group's intensity, four four days where uh, you really dig into the grace of God and how that maps onto the details of your life. And you go through all these things that are inside you that you maybe didn't even know were there. And we're on day two, two and a half, something like that. And God is doing a work in my life, showing me things that uh, I didn't know were there. And I decided it was time for a coffee, so I went next door and the girl served me coffee and said, oh, what are you up to today? And here I am, I'm at a church, I am doing a restore group, and I said, oh, I'm next door doing this group activity. And she said, oh, what is the activity? And I just froze and I was like, how do I explain a restore group to a girl making me coffee in like two minutes? 
And so I sort of just gave her this generic answer where I was like, oh, it's this group where you kind of talk about your feelings and what is going on in your life and past experiences and things like that. And she's like, oh, yeah, I do some of that sometimes. I'm like into psychotherapy and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's not what it is at all. But I just choked, you know, like I just I couldn't really explain it to her. And I, I walked away from the coffee shop just going like, what was that? I was scared. I backed off. I thought it would sound stupid talking about the gospel. There's a bit of that in all of us. You see, Second Timothy is a book for anyone who wants to hear the dying will and testament of the Apostle Paul. It's a book for anyone who needs a spiritual pep talk, like a father to a son. It's a book for anyone who is a leader in the church or aspires to be a leader in the church. It's a book for anyone who is timid about their faith. It's a book for anyone who is going through suffering or will suffer. It's a book for anyone who experiences persecution for their faith. It's a book for those who need some perspective on life and your role to play. And it's a book for those who are feeling stagnant in their faith. I think 2 Timothy is a book for all of us. And that's why we're spending six weeks in it. It's Flanders Field. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. So here we go, 2 Timothy. We're going to jump into the book. We're only going to take the first five verses Today, I hope you're convinced that this is a book for you. Of all the books in the New Testament, I think this is my favorite. And in the first five verses, we're going to see four reasons why you should carry the torch. Okay, four reasons, five verses. Here we go, verse one. It begins Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 1, we have Paul introducing himself as the writer. What he's really doing here, though, is reminding Timothy of where his authority comes from and why he spent his life preaching and teaching the gospel. The gospel that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for, the one who would come and forgive sins, that he would be the ultimate sacrifice, who would go to the cross and be hung up there and crucified for the punishments of the sins of the world. Right? And everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did was true and right because he was resurrected three days later. That's the gospel. And Paul has uh, spent his life preaching and teaching and living out the gospel. And he is an apostle, it says, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle means sent one, to be sent. Apostello is, is the verb to send, right? And so when, uh, when we read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we read about these 12 guys, they're called disciples, Right? That's something a little bit different. And then we get to Acts and all of a sudden they're the apostles. That's because Jesus has sent them. And, and Paul 
becomes an apostle, not because he was one of the original 12 that we read about in the Gospels, but he has this domestic road experience where he sees and hears Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus then sends him to the Gentiles. And so Paul becomes an apostle, and that's why he calls himself the least of the apostles, because he didn't actually get to walk and talk with Jesus like the others did. But he's a sent one from Jesus himself. By the will of God. It was God's plan and purpose that Paul would be an apostle of Jesus. You see, one reason that Paul had remained faithful to his calling amidst the tribulation and the persecution for a lifetime is the authority of the one who had called him. Reason number one to carry the torch of preaching and protecting the gospel is out of obedience to the one who has called us. The second reason that Paul writes is because of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 1? This is the telos, this is the, the end point. This is for the sake of. The goal is... The promise of life in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel at its broadest sense. And all that God is doing and accomplishing in the world from beginning to end, it is life with Christ, eternal life, and rewards one day in the kingdom. You see, this is not the end, there's more to come and there's life with Christ, then it's eternal. Don't you want to give yourself to something that doesn't turn to dust? You see, you can be faithful to a lot of things, and you'll get something in return. So what are you faithful to? Faithful to money? Because it buys us things that we want? Faithful to lust, because it brings us pleasure. Faithful to applause, because it gives us significance. Faithful to entertainment on screens, because it keeps us distracted. Paul says, I'm faithful to Jesus Christ. Because he has promised me life, and in him I find something I can get from nowhere else. It's eternal. It cannot be broken. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be taken away. Wherever you're looking apart from Jesus for life, you will not find it. Reasons to carry the torch of preaching and protecting the gospel. Firstly, out of obedience to the one who has called us, God himself. Secondly, the reward of eternal life with Christ. Verse 2 gives us our third reason. To Timothy, my beloved child, he is our recipient. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
There we see the close bond that Paul and Timothy share. Paul calls him his beloved child that he doesn't call anyone else. See, Paul saw Timothy like a son. And he writes his standard greeting in, at the beginning of this letter. Grace and peace. You see, in all Paul's letters, he starts by saying, grace and peace to you. But in this letter, he adds an extra. Mercy. Only in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy does Paul add to his greeting the word mercy. See, Paul recognizes that Timothy is up against it. The religious climate is against him. The political climate is that there's a tyrant leader persecuting Christians. He's got people in his church at Ephesus who are undermining him, who want to move away from Paul's teaching. They want to head in to a Jewish law direction. And when your mentor is in chains in prison, your knees start to knock a little bit. And Timothy began to shrink back. And we'll see in the coming weeks that Paul is going to tell Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't retreat in fear. Be prepared to suffer with courage. And for that, He offers mercy. There is mercy. Mercy from God. Mercy is kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. Kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. And it's mercy, in verse 2, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul reminds Timothy, even in his greetings, for those who suffer, God offers mercy. And it comes in all sorts of ways. Paul is going to describe how he received mercy from God through a man called Onesiphorus. Right, who came and visited him while he was in prison, who sought him out, who went through danger and risked himself to go and refresh Paul. And he calls it a mercy. And he says to Timothy, I know you're suffering. I'm calling you to suffer. And you know what I have for you? The mercy of God. Timothy, carry on the torch because there is mercy for your suffering. We carry the torch out of the obedience of the one who called us, the reward of eternal life with Christ, and because there is mercy for our suffering. Verse 3. And we're going to take verse 3 to 5 in one chunk because that is all one sentence in the Greek. And there is a jumble of ideas going on here because Paul, as he often does, starts an idea, goes down a rabbit hole, comes back and finishes the idea a little bit later. And so just stick with me as we kind of work through these two verses a little bit slower. This is what he says. I thank God whom I serve. 
as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul tells us at the beginning of the verse that he is thankful to God, but he doesn't actually tell us what he's thankful to God about until later. And so we're going to come back to that. He goes down one of these rabbit holes and we're just going to follow him there for a little bit. And the first thing that he says is he talks about his ancestors, that they served God as he serves God. Now, we're not exactly sure who Paul is referring to here, but he's probably referring to the patriarchs and the prophets of the Old Testament. We know Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And uh, if, if he came from a Pharisaical sort of background and heritage who were persecuting uh, Christianity, that is not something that he would necessarily be proud of. In fact, he speaks often about how he's not proud uh, of what he used to do. And so it seems as though Paul is reflecting back as to those who were faithful to God in the Old Testament And he talks about them, that, that that is his heritage now. Those who served the God of Israel faithfully through all circumstances. And they served him with a pure conscience. They had carried the torch in their time, fulfilling their responsibilities that God had called them to do before Jesus had come to the earth. What else do we know about Paul's prayers before he tells us what he's actually thankful for? He remembers Timothy in them, night and day. He's constantly got Timothy on his mind and in his heart, and he talks as he talks to the Lord. He remembers the tears that Timothy cried. What is he referring to here? Possibly referring back to Acts 20 and verse 37. So I just want to jump back there for a sec. This, this may or may not be exactly what he's referring to. It's probably something similar if it's not uh, exactly what Paul is referring to. So just hold your place in your Bible there in 2 Timothy and flip back to Acts 20. And Paul has gathered the Ephesian elders. Okay, So this is why we think this might be the case because this is uh, the, the, the church that Timothy is left in charge of. <clears throat> He's gotten the Ephesian elders together and he's talked through what he has done in his time there with them at the church. And he goes through his ministry with them. And we won't go through all the things that he, uh, he says to them and what he did there. And then he leaves them with some instructions, right? And you've got to remember that Paul, being an apostle, I mean, we all think like Paul is this tyrant that just kind of gets angry and goes into these places and, and kind of like lays down the law and, and you know... It, that was not the case. Like people loved Paul. If you were in the church and you were an early believer in Christianity, like when Paul came to visit, that was amazing, you know. And he gave his life to the church, and he would spend all his time trying to build the church, and he would encourage you in the faith. And so Paul kind of gets the elders together, or the, the the people there, and uh, he's about to leave, right? So these are kind of like his his parting instructions to them. And uh, let's just pick it up in, in verse 36, and it says this, And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Can you picture that? 
Here's the leaders of the church that he'd just spent so much time with, encouraging, building into, who had this common unity in the gospel. Christ had, had saved them. And they, Paul's leaving, and they all just get to their knees and pray together. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. This is a goodbye. And this is perhaps what Paul is referring to, that Timothy was there with tears, saying goodbye to his mentor, knowing that this would be the end. And maybe that is what he's referring to. It might be another time that we don't have recorded where Timothy and Paul met again. But he remembers his tears at their departure and I know what that's like I've been there before I've spent five years in the States studying I used to come back in the summer breaks and uh, which is winter over here it was normally a couple of months I would get over here just spending time with family friends some trying try to pick up some work to pay for it and uh, it was, I just loved it. It was making up for lost time. It was like, okay, you're away for 10 months of the year and here's your two months with family, friends, familiarity and you just try to make the most of those two months. And it would always happen with about a week to go, I'd get this knot in my stomach because I knew... It's coming to an end. And I was about to get on a plane. And I didn't know the next time I would see my family. And then the goodbyes would happen. And it was just waterworks for hours as I would say goodbye to each person. Brother, sister... Niece, nephew, mum, dad. And I would cry and I would cry and I would cry. as my heart would break. But I knew I had to go. I had to go. And I would pray to God as I left. And I'd say, tell me this is worth it. Tell me this study of your word is worth it. 
You see, I left not because I wanted to necessarily, but there was a purpose. There was a greater purpose behind it. And Paul and Timothy had a departure like that, where they would have wanted to stay together. But there was something greater that they both had to fulfill. Paul going this way, Timothy remaining behind. But it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean there is not pain. It does not mean you forget the tears. And Paul longs to see him again, that he may be filled with joy. But he's also heard of Timothy's reluctance to continue in the message, to carry the torch, to align himself with Paul and the gospel. Then we get to what Paul is thankful for. Finally, in verse 5, he actually tells us what he's thankful to God about. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Another way to translate it would be unhypocritical faith. Literally, the word means uh, without play acting. You see, Paul's confident about Timothy's future ministry and the faith that is in there somewhere. Paul says, I know it's in there. I know you have a sincere faith. I've seen it. I've ministered alongside it. I know you weren't play acting with me. And Timothy, I'm thankful to God about your sincere faith. It's a faith that he tells us first well in his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. You see, Timothy is a third-generation Christian. That's really rare at the time that Paul is writing. It's likely that Timothy grew up in a Christian household. Paul points out that both he and Timothy both have a spiritual heritage, a faithful spiritual heritage. There are those who have gone before them who were faithful, who carried the torch. And now, Timothy, it's your turn. You carry it. Like your, your mother Eunice did and your grandmother Lois did. It dwelt in them, it dwells in you. It's over to you now. And Timothy was to appoint elders, faithful men, who he could pass the torch to. And they would pass the torch on and on and on. It would go. And it kept going. All the way to us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, it has carried to us through thousands of years, through millennia of faithful men and women. And now it's our turn. Our turn to carry the torch. You see, the only reason you have the gospel right now, the only reason that you have come to believe is that somebody before you was faithful in passing on the message.
You see, as persecution increases and the church expands, these letters circulated around the churches, right? All of Paul's letters, the Gospels that we read, all those things that make up the New Testament, they would circulate around the churches. And as persecution began and the Roman uh, government wanted to wipe out Christianity, they would go to these churches, which were in households, and they would say, give us your writings, right? Which is an argument for very early on how sacred the Bible was, although it wasn't in this bound book at this time, individual letters. But the reason that you can tell that the Bible was important way back is because they wanted it and they wanted to burn it. And so they would go into these houses and they would say, give us your writings. And faithful men and women would stand their ground and they would say, you burn me before you burn the writings. And as time went on, the churches realized we need to gather all of these together these writings, these eyewitness accounts from the apostles themselves, and we need to collect them, and we need to preserve them, and we need to make copies of them, so that this will never die out. And that is why you can sit here with this book, because faithful men and women were willing to put their life on the line to preserve the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And now it's our turn to protect and preach the gospel. Reasons to preach and protect the gospel, carry the torch out of obedience of the one who has called us, the reward of eternal life with Christ, the mercy of God that will sustain you, the faithfulness of those before and those who are to come. I'll finish with this. Anyone heard of Wycliffe Bible translators? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. That mission organization gets their name from a guy named John Wycliffe. He was around in the 14th century. And he wrote a book called On the Truth of the Holy Scriptures. You see, the church at the time had strayed. We had gotten away from this. We had moved. Church authority was corrupt. It got truth from other sources. And John Wycliffe writes a book on the truth of the Holy Scriptures and he begins to translate the Latin Bible into our first English Bible. And his book declared that the scriptures should take precedence over all other truth claims, whether it be Pope or tradition. He thought that the scriptures were so vital that he began working on this translation. He believed it to be the sole authority for the believer. And he trained up local men who could preach and teach the scriptures according to the Bible. And of course, the Church authorities and hierarchy did not like this. They rejected what he had to say. And at the next council meeting in 1415, John Wycliffe, along with his writings, were burned at the stake. 
And at this time that John Wycliffe was doing this, there was a king of England and his name was Richard II. And he married a lady by the name of Anne of Bohemia, which is the Czech Republic now. And because they married, there was this exchange of ideas between the two countries. And Wycliffe's ideas, through Richard, made its way over to Bohemia. And there was a young man over there, and his name was John Huss. And he trained at a university in the Czech Republic, or Bohemia, and he heard about Wycliffe. And he got copies of his material that weren't burnt. And he believed in the authority of the scriptures. And he translated Wycliffe's writings into his own language. So that others may learn too the sufficiency of scriptures. And he was outspoken about the misuse of power within the church hierarchy. And he said and claimed that the true head of the church was Jesus Christ. And he called for reform based on the Bible, to which he was excommunicated, burned at the stake with his books around him in 1485. Two years before his death, there is a young man born by the name of Martin Luther. He's born into a period where Wycliffe and Haas have gone before him and their ideas were circulating. And there was a desire to return to the Bible, back to the apostles' words in Scripture. And so began a protest movement of corrupt church authority that had strayed from the Scriptures. A protest movement to reform the church, hence the name, the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther was the leader of a reformation and he had five core beliefs that drove this. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scriptures alone as authority, to the glory of God alone. And the only reason he got there And saw this and understood this was that there were faithful men who had gone before him like Wycliffe and Huss who had laid the foundation of faithfulness to the scriptures to protect and to preach the gospel no matter the cost. It cost them their life, but it was their blood, their bird flesh that allowed Luther to ignite the Reformation. You see, they had a purpose. They believed in the preaching and protection of the gospel and that it was more important than their very life. We've been throwing the torch. Are you ready? Are you ready if that's what it comes to? Decide beforehand so when it does come, if it comes, you've made up your mind. And as we go through the rest of the series in 2 Timothy, we're going to see what else it's going to require of you. So if you're not sure, wait six weeks. You'll hear some more. But if you're ready, you decide now. If you're not sure... 
If you're not ready, if you can't answer yes, I have another question for you. What has been stealing your affections from carrying the torch? What is it that stops you saying yes? Likely, it is something else that you worship. As I spoke earlier, we can worship many things, be faithful to many things, and we will get something out of it. But when we are faithful to preaching and protecting the gospel, we get Jesus and his eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are all prone to wander. We all get scared and fearful, suffering, persecution. We've all got hypocritical tendencies. We all tend to back away at times when the gospel calls us to move forward. That's in me. I've shared that this morning. But I've also shared that there is a greater story that we are a part of. There are faithful men and women who have gone before, who have upheld the truth of your word at the very cost of their lives. And we are thankful for them. And so I pray that you would stir in us the courage and the commitment to protect and preach the gospel no matter the cost. If persecution comes our way, give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to enter into that and know that you offer us mercy. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he gave for us, his very own life. He led the way. He was the first. May we be willing to imitate our Savior, who we love. And it's in his name that we pray these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.